Hello, Eugenie here. Let me kick off this episode with a confession. I may have a teeny tiny ulterior motive for starting this podcast, and that is that I get to spend time with people who I admire and look up to, and one of those people is our guest today, Dr. Isaac Golden. He is the World Authority on Homeopathic Immunization, or Homeoprophylaxis. We also say HP for short. He is also the first person to be awarded a PhD from a mainstream Australian university for research on a homeopathic topic. He has done HP research in Cuba and India at the request of their government authorities, and he has lectured on the topic of homeopathic immunization all around the world. He founded the Australasian College of Hanumanian Homeopathy in 1990. He's a regular contributor to local and international academic journals. He's the author of 11 books on homeopathy and over 100 articles. And he co-founded the Health Australia Party. He's obviously also setting a great example in his family because his daughter Leia is now also a homeopath and will be a guest on our show very soon. We are so lucky to have this incredible man right here in Australia. He is helping thousands of families, not just here, but worldwide. He is also a meticulous statistician, recording his results of homeopathic immunization and treating vaccine injury over the past 30 years and publishing the results in his various books. Get a cuppa, grab a seat and enjoy listening to the wisdom from this living legend. Welcome to the Homeopathy Hangout Podcast, where we discuss all things homeopathy from around the world. And now, your host, Eugenie Kruger. Hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome to Homeopathy Hangout. Today, we are hanging out with the amazing Dr. Isaac Golden, author of 11 books, homeopath, lecturer, co-founder of the Health Australia Party, World Authority on Homeopathic Immunization. The list goes on and on. Very warm welcome, Isaac. Thank you, Eugenie. It's very kind of you to invite me to have a chat with you and your uh, and your friends. The pleasure is all mine. It's just uh, such an incredible privilege to have you here. I'm wondering if we can just jump straight into your yep. journey to homeopathy. How did you first discover it? What led you then to study it and write about it and teach it? Yeah, well, I guess from a young age, I was always interested in natural things. I, I loved living in the bush and uh, simple things like reflexology and um, only eating a modest amount of junk food. <laughs> so uh, my original professional training was in economics and financial accounting and I did that for quite a few years and then an opportunity came uh, where I decided to change my career path and I started studying natural medicine in more detail, particularly things like flower essences, tissue salts, nutritional supplements. And then one day someone suggested I study homeopathy. And as soon as I read uh, the first little bit about Hanuman, because I'd never heard the word before, let alone heard Hanuman's name mentioned, uh, I kind of knew it was that was what was I was going to be doing in terms of natural medicine and so then I started studying I was living in quite a remote area at the time so only had access access to a couple of uh, correspondence courses which were pretty thin and when I moved eventually to Melbourne I was able to enroll in a, a proper uh, course but of course when one develops an interest you start reading and uh, yeah one thing led to another so I started practicing in 1984 
And then in 1985, very early, I was reading Hunnaman's lesser writings and to my absolute amazement came across his essay entitled The Cure and Prevention of Scarlet Fever. And to my amazement, um, he was talking about how homeopathy could be used to immunise people against specific infectious diseases because up till then the courses I'd done had only ever talked about homeopathy in terms of treatment which of course is most of what we do but I'd been a, a parent who used to vaccinate my children and one of them was vaccine injured some years prior to all of this and so I realised I'd found something that I, as a parent I would have loved to have known about and had the option of doing and so I decided to really focus on that and I designed my first uh, long-term immunisation program back in 1985. I uh, started to collect data from that because my training in statistics, I, I do love a bit of data uh, and uh, started to collect information and, and that's really where it took off. Um, did a, a doctorate on the topic 2000 to 2004 and then... 2008, I was very fortunate to be invited by the government of Cuba to attend a conference as lead speaker called Nozodes 2008. And to my absolute astonishment, I found that they'd been using my protocols in their big homeoprophylaxis programs against leptospirosis in 2007 and 2008, which is why they invited me there. And that was a, a life-changing experience, I have to say. I went back to Cuba three more times after that. And subsequently, when things changed there in 2015, uh, I went to India and been to India uh, five times since then to collect data and work with uh, some wonderful people over there in the Central Council for Research in Homeopathy, but also in other states, down in Kerala in particular, where... Uh, natural medicine in general and homeopathy is very, very strong um, and basically been talking about it, writing about it, studying it, learning about it still because I'm still learning. And of course, now in the last two years with COVID, it's been a whole new learning experience and I'm sure we'll talk about that as we go along. And we absolutely will. And, um, you know, it's very interesting in my uh, qualification that I gained from New Zealand. It was four years of full-time study, and we didn't actually cover much homeopathic immunization. So I have yeah. to say I was a little bit ignorant even after four years of full-time study. And it wasn't until parents were approaching me, asking me for safer options because their children had had vaccine reactions. So they were looking for safer solutions. They were. I was like, okay, I'm going to have to find out what this homeopathic immunization thing is all about because – the families are screaming out for information on this. Mm. So um, I have your, your books on hand and oh, I educated myself on the topic. And um, I, I've since, like, since uh, studying your material and listening to your interview on YouTube that you did with that brilliant doctor in uh, Cuba from the Finlay Institute. Oh, Dr. Bracho. Um, yes. Yeah. And um, just once I got homeopathic immunization, I was like, wow, why aren't we talking about this? And I'm wondering, can you maybe explain a little bit more about, because you just skipped over what happened in Cuba. That was actually monumental, the leptospirosis uh, outbreak that they had in 2008, and the just the volume of people that were involved in this. This is something that I think needs to be screamed from the rooftops, because it was very significant. 
It was significant because it was the first time that a government program had been talked about and published uh, in, if you like, Western circles. Because Cuba, of course, has been under an American embargo for over 50 years. Uh, And whilst it had strong connections with the Eastern uh, European bloc, as it was back then, Russia, etc., Uh, It wasn't really highly regarded. I mean, as an Australian, I knew very little about Cuba apart from, you know, music and mojitos. (laughs) But uh, in terms of their healthcare system, uh, we mainly got fed what the Americans thought about them, which was not particularly flattering. But uh, Cuba was, it's probably a bit less now, But under Castro, Cuba was very, very open in terms of medicine to all modalities. In other words, orthodox, conventional pharmaceutical medicine. They had to make a lot of their own pharmaceuticals and they had to make a lot of their own vaccines because they couldn't get anything from America and America made sure that some European countries wouldn't uh, trade with them. And uh, they're, in fact, a very highly vaccinated country but the the lady who was uh, in charge, the president of Finlay Institute, for many, many years, who was a very close friend of Fidel, they used to talk to each other on the phone very regularly, and she was the only woman on the Cuban National Council. I'm talking about um, uh, what everyone in Cuba calls her Conchita, but uh, Dr. Concepcion Campahuego, uh, who is a real scientist in the sense that She was the person who really implemented Cuba's vaccination program. And the Finlay Institute makes and supplies vaccines to many countries in Africa and South America in particular. Uh, But she was open, as real scientists are, to learning about new things. And she was visiting Brazil um, where they sold a lot of vaccines too. Cuba was actually the, the first country in the world to make a meningococcal meningitis B vaccine, which we still have to pay extra for if you want to get it in Australia, but they've had it since probably, well, the early 2000s. Uh, and she was down in Brazil investigating uh, how things were going with their vaccine. And she was looking at the reports from uh, the different provinces and one province stood out. I think they were getting 70s to 80% effectiveness, but one province stood out. It was in the 90s. And so she went there and she said to the doctors there, how come you're getting a better result than any other province? And they said, well, we're also using homeopathic immunisation. And that was the first time she'd heard about it. But she went back home and then when... uh, Leptospirosis is uh, something that happens every year in Cuba and it's to do with the hurricane season in particular because it's a a disease transmitted usually through rodent urine into water. So when there's a lot of standing water following hurricanes, then that's when it can spread. 2007, they they were having a very bad year and she asked Dr. Bracho, who was the person uh, that I spoke to on the website, to investigate this and he must have come across my writings because they then decided in 2007 to in the three eastern provinces of Cuba where the outbreak was very bad to immunize over two million people against 
leptospirosis and they had a very good result but in 2008 they had an amazing result now a lot of people refer to the article though, hey. oh I yes i just want to differentiate yes. you mean no. homeopathic immunization not conventional immunization I, uh, no, I don't call conventional immunisation. I call that vaccination. I, I call it vaccination as so, well. I was just because it's yeah. the public listening. I, I try to. Sure. Yeah, but, but you were yeah. talking okay. about so 2.2 million homeopathic people. Homeoprophylaxis. Yeah. Yes. And, but in 2008, they had a better result. See, the article published in the journal Homeopathy is the one that most homeopaths see. But actually, the result the following year was an even better one and more clear, less ambiguous than the 2007 result because they had a worse hurricane season in 2008. They still homeopathically immunised those three eastern provinces uh, against lepto. And when you looked at the difference between the figures in the remainder of the country compared to the immunised group in those three eastern provinces, the figures were dramatic. A very, very unambiguous and clear result. And then in 2010, uh, the Cuban government, when the swine flu scare hit the world, and that could have become what we're dealing with now, by the way, if certain forces had been better prepared for it. But when the swine flu scare hit the world, the Cuban government told Finlay to immunise the whole country, over 10 million people uh, who were over 12 months of age, against swine flu well when bracho and i were looking at the figures we couldn't draw a conclusion because there were too few cases and of course it was impossible to know how many cases came into the country but what they did at the same time they immunized homeopathically against pneumococcal disease and in 2010 when you look at the graph the figures fell dramatically 2011 they came back up again once again, a, an amazing result. But it also showed what could have been done against COVID, which hasn't been done, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. uh, I always say that bacteria and viruses have been on this planet for millions of years before any of us. They are much smarter than any of us. They are always going to mutate and they're always going to find a way to get around things. And that's why we have things like... Um, bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics that's why we now have a mm. delta strain of covid you know and that's what happened with leptospirosis in cuba there used to be just three strains and then because of over vaccination the the virus ended up mutating and uh, becoming a fourth strain and that's why the cuban government i believe they couldn't quickly enough manufacture a new vaccine it would uh, i think dr bracho said in that interview it would have optimistically taken them two years to create a new vaccine yeah. and that is why they ended up resorting to homeopathic immunization so you know homeopathic immunization is amazing in that it costs a few cents to immunize each person you don't have to store it in a refrigerator it, you don't have to administer it through a needle it's just a pillow you put on a child's tongue it's so easy to comply you can use it for the whole world it is um you know i get a little bit excited about this because it's really the ultimate <laughs> medicine it's the ultimate immunization and i know you're all fired up about this i'm preaching to the converted but it gets me so excited that in a case of where this um the leptospirosis might uh, mutated homeopathy was to the rescue within a few months they had the remedy they had administered it to millions of people i mean how amazing is that it really is the medicine of the future isn't it well not if certain people have their way it's not and <laughs> the thing that i'm not excited about is the extent to which in this country and let's just talk about australia for a moment uh, options like this 
and not just homeopathic options, but many other options used by integrative medicine doctors around the world in many other countries are just completely off the radar in terms of our health officials, our dumbed-down media who will not report anything that's happening overseas of any consequence, and, of course, the politicians who are slavishly following the advice of their health officials. We could have done so much right from Mm. February last year. Now, it's interesting... Uh, I've just learned a a little bit more about Cuba and the the coronavirus because a brief letter to uh, one of the Indian homeopathic journals came out some time ago talking about uh, the early use of homeopathic immunisation against COVID in Cuba. And this was a report back from May last year, May 2020, now, they had given a first round of HP, or homeoprophylaxis, to about 5 million residents, and that meant there were about 6.5 million residents who didn't have it. And they compared the attack rate of, of COVID in the two groups, the homeopathically immunised group and the, the group with nothing. And, of course, there were no vaccines back then. And the effectiveness at that early stage of the homeoprophylaxis was 94%. Now, I'm sure that it would become less than that. I mean, I did some big surveys and published some articles in 2019 looking at trying to work out um, an average for the effectiveness of HP around the world against all diseases and the average came in between 85 and 90 percent and that's certainly as good as you'll get from any vaccine and the the lovely thing with homeoprophylaxis or homeopathic immunization is that the effectiveness is very consistent across different diseases it doesn't fluctuate like the difference between the effectiveness of the flu vaccine and the measles vaccine is enormous with whooping cough vaccine somewhere in the middle but with homeoprophylaxis it's very consistent and what it means is that even though they I don't think they would have kept 94% they probably would have come down between that 85 and 90 and that would have saved the world so much expense so much trouble so much difficulty i mean morrison boasted uh, 6 months ago that he was going to spend 6.8 billion dollars on vaccines and it's going to be more than that because we now know that because the the vaccine effectiveness is much less than it was originally promised, they're going to have to be boosters. We could have immunised all of Australia back by May last year for about $200 million, including rollout costs, because the cost of the actual medicine, as you said, is very, very inexpensive. And we could have repeated that at the end of last year we could have repeated that again when the COVID strain came because unlike vaccines the effectiveness of homeoprophylaxis does not depend on that lock and key like it does with vaccines between the antigen and the antibody what we have to find is what's called a similarity of symptoms so even if we don't have a remedy prepared from the virus in this case, just as I didn't have that, um, you know, wasn't available in February last year and the Cubans didn't have that, the Cubans used similar remedies. Nozodes from diseases like influenza that were similar to corona. 
and what we call genus epidemicus remedies, remedies used to treat the disease. Mm -hmm. And that worked very, very well. Mm -hmm. Because most of our listeners are the general public, I like to just clarify a few things in between so we don't lose people. And um, homeopathy is obviously based on the principle of like cures like. And that means that even if a remedy is similar to the disease, it's still going to be able to be helpful. Um, and something I love about homeopathy Well, that's is not quite, ho quite correct, Eugenie. Mm -hmm. Like homeopathy is more than like cures like. This is the misunderstanding a lot of people have about the principle of similars or the law of similars. Mm. The law of similars does not apply just to curing. It also applies to treating. So it's not like cures like. It's the combination of like opposed to like, whether it's opposed to it in terms of treating a particular condition or opposed to it in terms of preventing a condition. And just as the first, yeah, the first remedy that uh, Hunnaman used, the remedy Belladonna against scarlet fever, that was used to initially to treat the disease. So that was an example of like cures like, because Belladonna can produce the similar sort of feverish symptoms that were happening in the early stages of scarlet fever and, and also the skin condition as well. But then he used it to prevent so it was like preventing like, if you like. So just this, this, when I first started studying, I didn't hear about this. It was all about treatment only. But the principle of similars is much broader, is much more all-encompassing than that. It deals with prevention and treatment. Um, I love what you're saying there. And I was just going to pipe in there and say, at least homeopathy is based on a principle, whereas with uh, traditional or orthodox medicine, it is not based on any principle whatsoever. It's completely ad hoc. And with homeopathy, we have the, the same principle that we've stuck to for 200 years that underlies mm. what we do. So we are very certain and confident uh, in the way that we treat because we have a, you know, the, our system has stayed the same. Well, it's and, a principle uh, that goes back much further than 200 years. Uh, it goes back to Hippocrates and, uh, and other great healers uh, who knew about the principle of similars. But the thing that Hahnemann did, uh, he made it usable by ordinary people, like Paracelsus, for example, gave very complicated descriptions of how he applied the principle of similars. And he needed, if you like, insight, which the average person doesn't have, to apply it. But Hahnemann was the first person to make the principle of similars easily and readily usable by people of any, you know, average intelligence. And that was a great step forward for medicine. Absolutely. Um, I mean, there, I was quickly going to mention just in Brazil as well, there was the meningococcal outbreak. And I think there was about 65,000 uh, people that were homeopathically immunized there as well with yeah. a 95% uh, success rate in the first wave. And I think it went to about 90% in the second wave of the yeah. meningococcal outbreak with homeopathic immunization. So we could go on and on and on uh, about all of this. And I was also going to mention just that as homeopaths, it's so crazy that we have to be so careful about speaking about this. Um, we had a homeopath a few years ago in Australia that was fined $120,000 for advertising homeopathic immunization. And the reality is that nobody in 200 years, over two, over 200 years of homeopathy has ever died of 
our medicines, of homeopathic medicines, whereas pharmaceutical drug side effects and medical errors are one of the leading causes of death in the world. I think it's about a third or fourth leading death of cause of death in the world. So I just think it's crazy that something that is so beneficial and so safe and so cheap is being suppressed so much. Um, yeah, it's in this, in this country so good. and in many other mm-hmm. similar countries, but not in all countries. Mm-hmm. And this was the, the thing with Cuba, for example, uh, that the doctors there could use pharmaceutical medicine because at times pharmaceutical medicine is the most appropriate form, particularly in acute emergency situations. It's when it comes to chronic illness that it can do and very often does more harm than good. But we, we mustn't throw out everything. And India is another example where uh, some years ago when Mr Modi, the Prime Minister, came to power, he elevated what was a a section within the Indian Health Department to its own ministry, the Ministry of Ayush. And Ayush is an acronym for Ayurveda, uh, Yoga and Naturopathy, Unani, Siddha and the H is Homeopathy. So effectively it's the Ministry for Natural Medicine and the Indians in terms of numbers of course have done massive interventions and and their intervention... um, you know, against Japanese encephalitis in Andhra Pradesh going back, um, you know, to the 90s. That that was incredible because that was done in 20 million children for 11 years and they brought down the rates from very high levels to, to virtually zero in Andhra Pradesh. And when you looked at the states surrounding it, which weren't doing this, the figures remained up. And that's the interesting thing with India at the moment with COVID. Um, They've rolled out ivermectin, and I'm no massive fan of ivermectin because we have a natural substance, quercetin, which is also a zinc ionifer and can be used instead of that. But they rolled out ivermectin in about half a dozen Indian states, including Delhi, and and the figures went from very, very high and totally distressing way down really, really quickly uh, from the middle of uh, May. Now, our media in Australia hasn't reported that. They don't want to report success stories of a product, not a homeopathic product, but a product which had proved incredibly successful because when you looked at the Indian states that didn't do that, the figures stayed up. And doctors here are not allowed to freely use ivermectin So even though it wouldn't be my personal first choice of treatment, it works. And they're worrying about our hospital systems being overloaded. If the doctors here were allowed to use ivermectin, it would keep people out of intensive care units because that's where it's done in the world, everywhere it's been allowed to be used. So unfortunately in this country, our health bureaucracy will not tolerate anything that doesn't fit the pharmaceutical paradigm. It's unbelievable. Now, you are also the co-founder of the Health Australia Party. Can you tell us a bit about how your path led down this way? Yeah, look, I'm with great reluctance back in 2015, along with uh, five other people, uh, made an agreement. We met in a cafe in Melbourne uh, to talk about this. We had one thing in common. All of us were sick and tired of the attacks on natural medicine. And uh, by then, the attacks had got quite strong. And there was a a very powerful pro-pharmaceutical lobby group 
inappropriately called the friends of science in medicine. There's nothing scientific about them. Um, they had been formed to, uh, basically in their own words, uh, destroy natural medicine in Australia. And they've done a pretty good job, actually, because mm. they're very highly connected uh, with politicians. Um, they're, of course, completely highly connected within the orthodox uh, health bureaucracy and within some of our research institutes like the NH and MRC, the National Health and Medical Research Council. Uh, we know that the NH and MRC uh, people uh, were affected by the members of this lobby group when they released their report on homeopathy and then subsequently on another 16, I think it was, uh, natural therapies, basically saying mm. that none of them had any evidence of uh, effectiveness. Well, that is still under challenge because what they did was methodologically totally inappropriate for researchers to do. First of all, they had a, a person who did their, uh, if you like, the data collection and analysis and came back and said, oh, well, there is uh, evidence here that homeopathy does have a measure of effectiveness. Well, they fired her. And then they employed mm -hmm. a new group, the Optum group. And partway through that, obviously Optum must have been finding the same thing because then they changed the parameters of the research project, which you just don't do in orthodox research. And the reason you don't do it is to prevent the researchers from fiddling the figures. But yeah, that's exactly Absolutely. what our premier scientific, medical scientific research body did. And it's disgusting. Mm. Really we is. had uh, Jerry Dendrinos on our yeah. second ever podcast uh, <laughs> talking through that because yeah. it's important that people know this, the general public yeah does not know about this fraud that is going on that's being funded by taxpayer money. So I'm so glad that you've mentioned this as well. Yeah, yeah. Jerry and I are good buddies and he's the perfect man to talk about that topic. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, vaccine injury as well. That's something that you treat a lot of. I see it in my clinic yeah. every day. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, how you've seen yeah. things change over your decades of practice and um, what sort of mm. things you're seeing now? Well, I got involved with that very early on in my practice because of the homeopathic immunisation and obviously a percentage of parents who were seeking the homeopathic alternative to immunisation were doing so because they'd vaccinated their children and the children had been injured, just as happened to one of my children. So it was something that I immediately resonated with and uh, I remember my first main case was a young lady who was about 16 I think when her mother led her in um, she hadn't finished school she'd been diagnosed as epileptic from a very early age had been on epilim the rest of her life basically from that very early age to then her mother led her in she just sat there she the, the young lass didn't say a word herself uh, she worked in a sheltered workshop and uh, um, life was really very, very bleak. Anyway, um, I took the case and it was pretty clear to me that the epilepsy had started following one of her early vaccines. And so I started to treat her and I said to the, the mother, I remember this, for goodness sake, don't stop the epilem, just keep going with that 
and uh, then come back in about three or four weeks. Anyway, they came back about three or four weeks later and the young girl walked in, smiled at me, said hello, sat down and obviously she'd noticed a dramatic change. And so we talked about this and then um, I said to the mum, well, you know, maybe now we could possibly start to talk about stopping the epilim. And the mum smiled and said, oh, we stopped that two weeks ago. And, you know, I sort of, it's not something you do is suddenly go off orthodox medication. And I'd advise them not to do that. But, you know, they decided that she'd picked up so quickly and so dramatically that they would. And, of course, that even helped helped her further because it can be one of the adverse events of the thing that it can take away a person's well, life force almost. So I was very blessed that uh, one of my first cases was so clearly benefited um, and then I started once again uh, a bit later unfortunately than with the immunization I started collecting data I've now published the third edition of my book I see you've got the second edition there um, the third edition has come out with a whole lot more data and I'm still collecting data uh, and maybe along the way there'll be a fourth edition with the latest data as well but the data is showing unambiguously how many, many people who are profoundly affected in some cases can be helped mm. by appropriate homeopathic treatment. So uh, autism, of course, is one of the major um, symptoms that there is debate about. Do vaccines cause it or don't they? Now, I firmly believe, and we have evidence, that vaccination is not the only cause of autism, but it is one of the causes. And when you take a case history and you can see that a child's progressing absolutely normally in terms of eye contact, language, starting to say mum, dad, whatever, in terms of uh, fine motor skills, interaction with others, hugs, cuddles, etc., up to 12 months of age or 18 months of age, then suddenly it stops within a week or two of the vaccine. You don't need a PhD in anything to work out. There's very likely a link. When you see it multiple hundreds of times and then you see the use of potencies homeopathic potencies of the suspected vaccine uh, remove over time and it can sometimes take a couple of years those symptoms and you see a child who had no eye contact making eye contact again who had no language starting to talk again or who had only repetitive language starting to respond and make form sentences etc etc and be able to play with other children the only way those potencies could work is if the po if the vaccine itself originally caused the problem otherwise they wouldn't work so what I've done in my books, as you would have seen in the book you just showed then, was develop maps of symptoms removed by using potencies of suspected vaccines. And that tells us with the wisdom of hindsight what the vaccine has caused. And I don't have a 100% success rate, but in terms of autism, I think it's around 70 the current figures show, and that's pretty good, mm. um, given that with some of the children I see, they are profoundly harmed. Now, sometimes vaccine injury uh, can cause harm beyond repair, and there are cases that are tragic. And just finally, because you asked me what differences I've seen over the years of practice, 
you really are seeing differences now. And when I first started getting involved in collecting data, the DPT vaccine was pretty much um, all to do with ADHD, aggressive, violent behaviour, and the MMR vaccine was all to do with autism. Well, now it's changed. And the DPT vaccine has now morphed into DPT hexa, which has six components mm. as opposed to three in the old days. And the percentage of autism in the DPT hexa is now growing compared to what it was in the old DPT vaccines. And we now have MMRV, so that's the MMR, measles, mumps, rubella, plus varicella or chickenpox, which has been added into the MMR vaccine. And interestingly, I was able in my most recent edition to look, there were just enough uh, cases to get a, a symptom picture of varicella on its own and then a symptom picture of the MMR vaccine. The remarkable thing was they were almost identical. So what the MMRV is doing is just reinforcing the potential problems caused by the old MMR on its own. So there are certainly changes. You know, I just, you would have seen me nodding my head the entire time and you were saying, parents say the child's fine, they have the 12 month shots come in, you know, and then, then they just lose their eye contact, all that. You know, I, 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 I just want to cry because I see that in my clinic every day. And these mothers are being fobbed off. They're being told by, by medical professionals that they're making it all up. But they are the ones that come into our clinic and bawl their eyes out because they have this child that was developing normally and suddenly is not. And we are being gagged from telling a lot of these stories. And, you know, we're not saying don't vaccinate. We would never, ever say that. Everyone needs to have a choice. They need to do what feels right for them. But we need to really investigate what's going on because all these mothers are saying that these things are happening and then we give them homeopathic remedies and their symptoms improve. Interestingly, something that I've found, I don't know if you've seen this in your clinic, but especially after the MMR vaccine detox, homeopathic detox, I have had a lot of mums tell me that their children have been a lot more affectionate. Which is oh, very absolutely! Yeah. No, that's yeah. one of the the two earliest things uh, is eye, the return of eye contact and mm -hmm. return of emotional connection. I mean, mm. as, once you see one or both of those happen, you know that you're on the right track, and you know that in time, if the parents are prepared to go long enough with the treatment, that other things mm. will be restored. You know, language, etc. You know, I'm working absolutely. with some lovely parents at the moment. Um, and their child is progressing except for um, really engaging language. And I keep saying to them, because I've only been working with them for a couple of months, it will come. You know, mm. everything's moving in the right direction. And with health, with the restoration of health, it takes time. And you can only, I believe anyway, only go at the pace that the person's own self-healing mechanism is able to tolerate. And the way we gauge that is by looking at symptoms. If sometimes you start trying to push it and go too fast, then things usually get thrown around. Uh, the nice steady progression ceases. And that's mm. a warning sign. Okay, well, we maybe just need to go a little bit slower. And that I'm, I totally get it that parents have been living with problems for years and years. Of course, they want to see their child become 
completely normal, for want of a better word, mm. uh, in a couple of months. Well, unfortunately, mm. it doesn't always happen. But the other thing is, it's very important what you said about the vaccination. Vaccination doesn't cause these sorts of things in every person. No one is saying that at all. In fact, the vast majority of vaccine injury is not in the more extreme cases of um, you know, uh, autism, uh, ADHD and those sort of behavioural or developmental delay issues which are very, very significant. Um, the en enormous number of physical things are also a product of vaccine injury but they're not a, such an obvious product because they may take months or even years to develop and it's only when you start treating them with potencies of the, of the suspected vaccine and you see the symptoms being removed things like asthma and eczema and as I mentioned uh, epilepsy a very common one a whole lot of gut issues lots and lots of gut issues particularly with the uh, MMR vaccine so the the extreme conditions are the tip of the iceberg. But then many, many children can be vaccinated and appear to have no adverse effect at all. So one must never generalise and say vaccines always do this or do that because they don't. And you're totally correct. I'm not anti-vax. I've got plenty of patients mm -hmm. who vaccinate, including in this COVID situation. And in fact, this is where we can help a lot by using potencies of Pfizer and AstraZeneca if a person has uh, ongoing vaccine issues. And there are other remedies uh, which can be used to treat the immediate symptoms, but then the ongoing ones can be helped. The only thing we don't really know at the moment with these new vaccines, the mRNA and the DNA vaccines, is will it be enough? With conventional vaccines, we've got so much evidence now so much clinical history with treating injuries from conventional vaccines we've got a pretty fair idea of what we can and can't do what's reasonable to expect and what's not reasonable to expect we're still learning that at the moment and we won't know for a couple of years to be honest just as we won't know the full implications of these uh, experimental vaccines until certainly until next year at the earliest which makes the rollout to children, to pregnant women, etc. It just fills my heart with mm. dread. Um, I mean, mm, we know okay. with the shedding, uh, with the patients that I'm seeing who have been affected by vaccine shedding with these new vaccines, the most common symptom has to do with female reproductive systems. Mm -hmm. And so women who have an, a regular menstrual cycle either getting extra periods or missing periods completely and I've even got a number of ladies who are well into menopause who started bleeding following it not the not the vaccine but just being exposed to vaccinated people so what's the vaccine doing and as I said we won't know the full implications of these until early next year when women you know have been vaccinated when they're pregnant start giving birth I hope it's not a tragedy I want I want to share something very personal. Uh, I might end up editing it out afterwards, but I do feel that it's very important to share. So I have had 30 years of regular cycles, never a mid-cycle bleed in my life until yesterday. And I 
am so shocked beyond belief. I have not been vaccinated, but I have been dealing with a lot of clients who have. And I've heard of a lot of my clients saying they've had nosebleeds. They've had unusual, some people get sore throats, Mm. headaches, rashes, unusual bleeds. I have never in my 30 years of having a menstrual Mm. cycle ever had a mid-cycle bleed until yesterday. And Mm. I am shocked. I'm absolutely shocked. I'm using some remedies to protect myself, but I'm realizing I obviously need to amp up the frequency. Mm. Um, Isaac, I know you've got a super busy day ahead, so I'm being very respectful of your time, but I want to squeeze a couple of things in. I realize I cut you off earlier when you started talking about the Health Australia party. So maybe we can just, uh, at the end, we'll just, we were busy talking about how you started it, but maybe we'll just refer people to your website because we've got about five minutes left, I think, before I know you have to rush off. Uh, One of the mums in my group said, I have to ask you, what keeps you going, researching, motivated when there's so much backlash from skeptics and things like that? Because all of us are watching you. We're seeing the amazing work that you do. You always have this incredible smile on your face and this beautiful aura about you. How do you do it? How do you keep going all these decades with the work that you do despite all this backlash that you're getting? Uh, well, I won't say it's whiskey, um, although <laughs> occasionally it is. Uh, I, I guess we all we all have our own um, belief system. We ha- all have our own connection with higher forces. Uh, to me, that's been something which has been enormously important for uh, over forty, well, actually fifty years. Um, so that helps, um, and um, seeing a great need is also very important but at times it is it's very very difficult i mean a few years ago uh, uh, the farmer forces paid some two-bit scribbler to do an attack piece on me which i noticed that some of the skeptics refer to from time to time contain numerous errors of fact but with the legal system in australia you can't do anything about it unless you've got a spare million dollars uh, lying around that you don't mind giving to lawyers so that was that, and it's not always pleasant, but look, mm. the um, what's more important to me is that uh, people who are really searching for options for themselves, but more importantly, that for their children, to keep their children mm. as healthy and as well as possible, uh, I mean, that's more important than, you know, one's personal things being... Uh, dragged through the the media mud at times and mm-hmm. um yeah that that those are the things that uh, keep me going more than anything else I think as homeopaths, we're always interested in the mental, emotional side of things. Like, why does somebody do the things that they do? And I, I have to say, the skeptics fascinate me because I'm like, why, where do you get all this energy? Like, what would make you want to attack somebody so badly that's doing so much good in the world? I'm always fascinated by the mindset of the type of person that has the time and energy to do something that's so negative. I Anyway, well, that's just beside the point. But one, just, one thing that why keeps, would people do it? One thing keeps, that keeps me going going is not spending any time thinking about what makes them tick it's not worth it <laughs> so, i'm just more fascinated like, I'm, just, I'm not fascinated why, why somebody just, do that <laughs> yeah, well. now let's finish off on a bit of fun what okay. is your top three remedies for you personally and why 
Oh, <laughs> well, um, <laughs> I suppose Nux Vomica, because if I'm ever traveling and have a few too many whiskies uh, while I'm out or in Cuba having too many rums, Nux Vomica is the greatest hangover remedy I'm aware of. Um, so <laughs> that's not a very good one to admit to, I know. Uh, but it's it, it, all human. But it's true. Uh, we are all human. Um, yeah. Oh, look, it's, I, I think <laughs> it's a really interesting question, which I don't think I've ever been asked what my top three are. Uh, at the moment, I guess I'd say uh, the, one of the other top two is the remedy that I'm using um, to try and help people uh, deal with shedding. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it's a remedy I uh, picked up from um, a colleague who uh, uh, works in Israel and, um, and Africa and a wonderful man who had a lot of experience there because Israel's been vaccinating crazy for ages. Mm. Uh, so that's a great remedy. Um, the potency of scorpion, actually. And um, the third one, oh, look, I don't know. Uh, I love them all. <laughs> <laughs> it's That's too hard. That's why I ask this question. It is too. All hard. right, Arnica, because when I fall off the ladder yes. when I'm climbing up doing something stupid, that's the first thing you go to. <laughs> Absolutely. Isaac, you're so generous with your time. You're a shining light. We are so lucky to have you in this world and especially in Australia. Thank you so much for everything. It's that my you do. pleasure, and thank you, Jenny, for the opportunity to have a chat.